Dear congregation, we read in the book of Deuteronomy how Moses was giving instruction to that second generation. The first generation had died in the wilderness, and now that second generation was about to enter into the promised land. He gives instruction of what they are to do when they enter into that land and how they are to conduct themselves. They are to go in. They are to take possession of that land. God would give them possession of that land. And then once they had reached the center of that land in the area of Shechem, they were to build something of a a tower. And they were to plaster it. And they were to write on that small tower all the words of the law of God, showing that that law of God was to rule them as they lived in the land. All the words of the covenant. Last week we heard of the book of the covenant that Moses wrote and then sprinkled the people with blood. Here it was put in that permanent visible form there. And once that was done and they had built an altar, they were to divide and six tribes were to go onto Mount Gerizim and six tribes were to go on Mount Ebal. They were two mountain slopes that came down and met each other in a valley. And so you imagine it. There are these six tribes on the one side and six tribes on the other side. And then the law and the words of the covenant of God were to be read. And as the blessings were read, it was especially to those on Mount Gerizim that they were directed. And then the curses were read. We read them there in Deuteronomy. And do you remember the refrain, children? Every time when we read the Bible this morning, we read, cursed. And then, let all the people say, remember that word? Amen. All the people, after each individual curse, were to say, amen, a curse, amen, a curse, Amen. Imagine you received that instruction from Moses. If we only had Deuteronomy, we would begin to wonder, would the people actually do that? Who would actually dare say amen after all God's curses? Maybe some of them as you read them this morning. Some of them don't convict you because you say, I have never thought of doing such a thing. When you come to that last one, that last one, cursed be he that confirmeth not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. That congregation is where we are directed in this morning, not only through this passage of Deuteronomy, but also in our Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day, Lord's Day 4. I invite you to turn to Lord's Day 4 as you find it on page 33 
in the back of your Psalters. There we have three questions and answers. You recall how last time we saw how God created man perfect and that our depravity comes from our fall. And now the question comes, question nine, doth not God then do injustice to man by requiring from him in his law that which he cannot perform? Not at all. For God made man capable of performing it. But man, by the instigation of the devil and his own willful disobedience, deprived himself and all his posterity of those divine gifts. Will God suffer such disobedience or rebellion to go unpunished? By no means. But he is terribly displeased with our original as well as actual sins and will punish them in his just judgment temporally and eternally as he hath declared, Cursed is every one that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Notice the quote of Deuteronomy 27. Is not God then also merciful? God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. And we know that the purpose of this Lord's Day is to lead us to say amen to God's curse, because notice how question 12 begins. In, question, in Lord's Day 4, there are these questions which are almost like objections, trying to find an escape. But question 12 begins this way, Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. See that? To saying amen. We deserve temporal and eternal punishment by the righteous judgment of God. And that that would indeed be the fruit of the word of God this morning, to say amen. That's our theme, saying amen to God's justice. First, in his law. Second, in his curse. And third, in his son. Saying amen to God's justice in his law, in his curse, and in his son. There is this contrast that is developed already in Lord's Day 3 that we are utterly incapable of doing any good and prone to all evil unless we're born again. And that is what the Word of God teaches, doesn't it? That we cannot do good. And the Lord Jesus says that ye no man can, is able to come to me. We are sinners. We are born sinners. And therefore what we do is sin. In fact, Ephesians 2 says that we are born dead in sins 
and trespasses. You can't get any worse than that. Dent spiritually. And at the same time, God continues to demand that we live unto God, that our hearts and our lives and everything about us is alive in love and devotion to God, and that we keep his whole law. And when we put those two side by side, we must live to the glory of God, and we cannot begin to do anything good. Then that question can come in a child, in a young person, in an adult. A question I think that all of us have had to come up inside us. Is that fair? For God to expect us to be perfect when we're all sinners and none of us can be perfect. Is that fair? And for God to then punish us for not being perfect when we can't be perfect. How can we be blamed? You don't punish someone who's born without eyes for not seeing. You don't punish someone who is born lame for not walking when you tell him to walk. You don't punish someone for not listening to you when he's born deaf. How can God punish ones who are born dead in sin for not living to him? Those are thoughts that can go through us. But have we also traced the source of those thoughts? Is that fair? Why? How can God punish us when we can't be perfect anyway? Have you ever discovered that behind those thoughts there could be that proud rebellion against God, that proud unbelief? It's not love and adoration of God. It's not trust and submission of God that feeds these thoughts. Isn't it that very sin itself that wants to shift the blame away from me to God and wants to also slip away from being punished and held responsible for my sin. But it doesn't work, does it? And when we say we're just trying to understand, understand this, then we also have to be so afraid of that unbelieving logic, that corrupted logic, rather than having that believing understanding of the submission to the Word of God. So often, God's law and man's ability are confused. And the Arminian says that God commands, that means we must be able to keep that command, otherwise God would not command it. And the hyper-Calvinist says, We are not able to keep the law of God, so in effect, God cannot really command us to do it. Cannot command us to be perfect, cannot command us to come, cannot command us to repent, cannot command us to to believe, because we can't. So often, uh, our ability and God's ability to command are bound together, 
and they stand or fall together, but that's not at all the case. The reality in the Word of God is that He commands, and the reality is that we are not able to keep those commands. Both are in the Word of God. The Lord Jesus says, come unto me, that's his command. And he says in the same chapter, John 6, no man can come to me. He says both. Both are true. Both are real. And we must believe him when he speaks both. That also means when he comes and he commands, then we cannot hide behind our inability and say, well, I I cannot do it, and therefore cannot expect me to do it. No, he commands, and he has every right to expect us to do it. And when also the elders come to us in home visit and they urge us with the calls of God, to never just hide behind, well, I can't do it, and think, therefore, we are free from our responsibility and our blame and our guilt for not listening. Does God then do injustice to man by requiring from him what he cannot perform? The answer is not at all. Why is that? It's because he's our, he's our creator. We are dependent on him for our every very existence. And as are his creatures, we have every reason to listen to whatever he says. And as his, our creator, he has every right to tell us what we are to do and what we are to be. He is our maker. And Isaiah 33 adds, the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He has every right as our maker and creator to tell us what to be. We have to begin not with our birth and our birth into sin, but we have to go back to our creation and our creation by our creator. And the fact that when we were created, God created us perfectly able to keep his law perfectly. We were able never to sin. God created us perfect. But what did we do? We turned our back on God. We destroyed that beautiful gift of righteousness in which we were created, that beautiful gift of knowledge and holiness in which we were created. We just threw it away, and now it's gone. But we are to blame because we have deprived ourselves of those gifts with which we were created, our ability to be perfect. We did so, yes, by the instigation of the devil. Genesis 3 makes clear that the the devil tempted Eve through that serpent. And the Lord Jesus says the devil was a murderer from the beginning. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety. The devil is guilty, yes, but that guilt of the devil in no way clears us of the blame for listening to the devil. That snake did not come and wrap around Eve and take that apple and force that into the mouth of Eve. No. Eve herself listened and plucked that fruit and put it to her mouth and ate it. 
The serpent did not drag Adam and Eve into the pit. No, we listened to the serpent and we ran into the pit and we plunged into the pit by our own willful disobedience. That's what Ecclesiastes tells us. God hath made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions, sought out sinful inventions of their own making willfully. And every day confirms that we are children of Adam, fallen, sinful, willfully. Last time we saw that Adam was our representative. He was our head. He acted on our behalf. And we cannot separate ourselves from Adam. That is the arrangement in which God created mankind to have that head. And he has fallen and we have fallen with him. And every day confirms it. And our guilt, our sin, is our guilt, our fault. Is God unjust to require us perfect obedience? Not at all. You have to think not of the man that's born blind being blamed for not seeing. But you have to think of this illustration. Imagine you took your life savings, all of it, and you entrusted it to a financial advisor. And he has it. And he has to use it in order to invest it wisely. But what does he do? He puts it all in his own bank account and he wastes it all and it's all gone. And he somehow declares bankruptcy. You come to him. You say, where's my money? He says, I've spent it all. It's gone. I can't pay it back. What do you say? Because you can't pay it back, you shouldn't pay it back. You don't have to pay it back because you can't pay it back. No, I gave it to you so that you would give it back and use it for me. His inability doesn't absolve him of that responsibility to give back what is yours. No less does our inability absolve ourselves from that obligation to give God what he is due. We, by our own foolishness, have made ourselves unable. It's our guilt, our fault. That's how it is. Does God do this to man? That very suspicion of God, that very subtle accusation of God is such a sinful attack on the honor of God as if he would ever do anything that is unfair, as if he would ever be unjust. God is just. God is right in all that he does, in all that he demands from us. In the suspicion of God that trying to shift the blame against, uh, to God will never work. It didn't work with Adam and Eve. When Adam said, the woman whom thou gavest me, she gave me the fruit and I did eat. Subtly blaming God, it didn't work at all. And neither will ever our attempts to blame God and to say that we can't really be held responsible because that's just how we are, as if God made us that way. No, not at all. A much better way for us is to come and to acknowledge the justice of God in giving his law and that his law is indeed perfect. 
throwing aside all our objections to whether he is fair or not. You remember how how the Israelites said the ways of the Lord are not equal and the Lord came to them in Ezekiel 18 and he said, are my ways unequal? Not your ways unequal, saith the Lord. God is just in giving us his perfect law and expecting us to keep that law every moment. And is that not what we must say in response to his law? Amen. Every time we hear a command of God to say, Amen, yes, this is true, this is good, this is right. Every command of God, Amen. Is that not the grace of the Spirit who subdues our proud, blame-shifting unbelief and leads us to bow and to confess that God has every right to expect me to be perfect because God is perfect and God can be satisfied with nothing less than perfection? As he led you to do so, say amen to the law in all its perfection, even in the midst of all your inability to keep it. We have to go a step further. Because there on Mount Ebal, they they did not have the law and the commandments read to them to say amen to every time. They had the curses against the disobedience of the law of God. And after each curse came, they were to say amen. That's why our second point is saying amen to God's justice, not only in his law, but in his curse. In the next question in the catechism, there is this attempt to soften the consequences of disobedience, to escape them. Will God suffer such disobedience and rebellion to go unpunished? Yes, there's disobedience. Yes, it's real. Yes, we have to admit that we are guilty. But will the punishment really be so bad for sin? Will God really punish all our sin? Or will he let us us go? Let us off the hook? By no means. He must punish sin. That's why the refrain on that Mount Ebal was cursed, 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 cursed. About every sin, it meets the curse of God. And God, when he curses, does not do so just as a cold, impassionate judge who reads the law book and pronounces the sentence. No, he curses with all his heart because his holy heart hates sin. His holy heart of love hates sin. It must. The degree to which he loves his glory and loves himself is the degree to which he hates what dishonors him and goes against him. I forget if I used that illustration recently, but... If you love your wife and you love her with all your heart 
And then you hear people slandering her and saying terrible lies about her. Can you come home and say, my dear, I love you, and I love that slander that's going around about you? Well, the degree to which you love her is the degree to which you hate that slander and those lies about her. God loves his glory, and therefore he must hate everything that goes against his glory and that, that, that shows it, that it in the places in Scripture where it speaks of him being grieved to his heart about sin. We read in Psalm 5, Thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. He has no pleasure in wickedness, none whatsoever. In fact, he hates all workers of iniquity. Two psalms later, in Psalm 7, verse 11, we read, God is angry with the wicked every day. Every day, his anger burns against the wicked. If we look around and we see the sunshine and we see people happily driving around, we don't see the anger of God. Maybe there's even someone here in church who thinks God can't be angry with me because life is going well. But what will you go by? By what you feel or by what God reveals in his word? God is angry with the wicked every day. That's his word. That's what it means to be under the curse of God. It's to have God's whole, infinite, holy, mighty being against you. That's to be cursed. To have God angry with you. My friend, has God led you to say amen to that? I deserve God's anger. I deserve God's curse. From my very beginning, born in sin, God is angry with sin, original sin, actual sin. If you come to confess with Paul, I am by nature a child of wrath, even as others. It's not just the people out there. Paul didn't just say, you Ephesians were once children of wrath because you were Gentiles and you were heathens and you were idolaters. No, he says, we were by nature children of wrath, also me. From the moment I came into existence, God terribly displaced. My friend, that's the word of God. And there's only one response, and that is to say amen, not to resist.
and self-righteous pride, but to say amen. Child of wrath. Because after all, the Word of God says, cursed is everyone that continues not in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. And who can say, that's not my description? I've kept all God's law. And this is a curse that God must express. Not just be angry in his heart and keep it in his heart. Sometimes we can have things in our heart and we keep them to ourselves, but we don't show them. No, this is in anger and this is a curse that God must show also in his punishment of sin. That's why when it says in Psalm 7 that he is angry with the wicked every day, it says, if he turn not, he will wet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. God is saying that if the wicked continue on in their wicked way, continue on the way they were born, they will meet him with his sword of justice to slay. That's why Psalm 5, when it says he hates the workers of iniquities, it goes on to say, thou shalt destroy them that speak lies. His hatred constrains him to punish. And that is not just a temper. Forgive me for even, even suggesting that of God. But this is justice. This is God carrying out his holy and pure justice. Justice must be satisfied either in our keeping his whole law or us being punished for the breaking of his law. And we cannot escape that justice. Think of how Nahum 1 reveals who God is, the unchanging God who is the same this very morning. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. You notice three times it uses that word vengeance, avengeth. And that verb means to take vengeance by inflicting punishment and exacting a retribution for wrong that is done. Here we don't have simply loving correction, but a vengeance demanded by sin as a defying of the justice of God. It is the punishment that God meets because he will not acquit the wicked he will never say that the wicked are good and that sin is not so bad. The wicked must be punished. That's a reality throughout the Word of God. We read those chapters after chapters of the judgments of God. And what are they telling us? The living God today is just and must punish sin. Something we find at the heart of the book of Romans, Romans 6, when it says, the wages of sin is death. When young people have a summer job and you work, why do you work? Because it's good to work, that's good. But why do you also work? You work to get paid. And if you were to work for two weeks and they, they said, well, I'll, I'll pay you sometime. 
And you work for a month and you work for the whole summer. And at the end of the summer, they don't pay you the wages that they said they would pay you. What are you? You say, what do you say? You say, that's not fair. Wages must be paid. Do you know what the wages of sin is? Death. And God is not unfair. He pays those wages. He must pay those wages. Wages of sin is death. Because God is just. God is fair. If his justice is dishonored by disobedience, he will maintain the glory of his justice by punishing disobedience. Sin must be punished. And God does punish. He does already in this life. You see the consequences right after the fall. We curse the ground. And we said that a woman would give child with pain. Those were consequences of sin. Romans 1 tells us that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven upon the unrighteousness of man. It's revealed in the present tense. He shows his wrath in different ways. He shows it in the judgments that come upon this world. The miseries, the pains, the sufferings, the brokenness. In personal lives and in great disasters of earthquakes, volcanoes, and tsunamis. As the earth groans under the curse that is upon it, it comes and that agony inside people's hearts and that accusing conscience comes and that hardening. These may be punishments. And of course, that does not mean that everyone who suffers is being punished for their sin. We know that God chastises his people. He does not punish in that same way because that punishment has been borne by Christ. But he does chastise to show the bitterness of sin and the sinfulness of it. It comes from his fatherly hand. But if we are separate from Christ, if we don't belong to Christ, then are those things not also punishments? Showing a displays of God's anger against sin and calls to repent. To repent lest we perish forever. And that is the whole, the greatest focus of this punishment of sin and of this curse It's forever. You just think of the person who who is living a difficult life and they want to just die and get out of that life, but they don't belong to Christ. Little do they know what they're hoping for. To be without Christ is to be under the curse of God forever, to be punished forever. The Lord Jesus Christ, who knew what the wrath of God was, who knew what the curse of God was, who knew what the punishment of sin was, is the one who warns about that place where that punishment is carried out forever. 
He is the one who speaks even on that beautiful Sermon on the Mount of that hellfire of being cast into hell and of the destruction that awaits those who continue on in sin. He warns us about following the many on the broad way that leads to destruction. He warns us this morning, fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth, he says to us. He asks those who are living in hypocrisy, putting on a nice show, but their hearts are still unreconciled to God. He says, how shall ye escape the damnation of hell? He warns that those who who are simply thinking well of themselves and think they don't need to worry that there will be those who will one day meet the Lord and say all the things that they have done for him, but he will say, I do not know you. Depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire, into everlasting punishment. And that fire, he says, shall never be quenched. You ever burned yourself? For a moment you touch something hot. How long do you touch that thing that's hot? It's for a moment. You say, ah! That fire shall never, ever, ever be quenched. And there's no escaping. The fire is never quenched, and the worm dieth not. And it's to be feared that there's ones here this morning who are still heading there. You can say, I don't feel it. But that's only because of the Lord's great, long-suffering patience with you that he doesn't let you feel his curse in its fullness in hell this moment. You say, I don't feel it. But the most important thing is this, that you'd believe it. <clears throat> and what is faith? What is believing it? Saying amen. <clears throat> Saying amen to that curse of God who cursed is whoever conti- who continues not in all things written in the book of the law to do them. And that you'd say this morning, amen, it's true, I deserve that curse. God's word is true. When it warns of the reality of God's eternal curse upon children of wrath, There are ones who once sat under preaching like you've sat under, that you are sitting under, and are now in hell, wishing they only had one more sermon, but it's too late. Their presence there calls out for those who are still unconverted to cry out and to flee the wrath to come. 
before they meet that Lamb of God and find him as the Lamb full of wrath. And they have to say, cry out, mountains cover us and hills hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. God's judgment is real. God's curse is real. And sin must be punished. And that is why that call comes to flee the wrath to come. Sometimes people say you shouldn't flee to Christ because of fear of the wrath of God, and we can have all those nice things. But my friend, if you're heading for hell, there's reason to flee the wrath to come. Paul says, knowing the terror of God, we persuade men. Hell is real, not because God is cruel, but because God is just, and because God must punish sin. God must curse. God can't show favor towards sin and say it's nice. It's not nice, it's abominable, and it must be cursed. And all those who live in sin must be cursed because God is just and holy and full of love for what is pure. That's why all those people on Mount Mount Evil, when they heard the curse, had to say amen, and their amen echoes through the centuries to us this morning in the word of God so that we would join with them and we would say amen. Yes, I deserve that We say there is a hell. We say God must punish sin. We say God is angry with sin. We say amen to it all. But when it comes to ourselves so personally, do we also still say amen? God says, let all the people, everyone here, including myself, say amen to God's curse. Lord, I deserve the curse because I haven't kept thy blessed and perfect law. I deserve thy wrath. We speak of faith. Faith believes everything God reveals, including what he reveals about his curse and about his judgment upon sin. You cannot pick and choose what you want to believe. False faith can, but true faith can't. Faith believes everything. And says amen also to God's curse. And is that not where the Lord leads? Leads to bow under his curse. I deserve it because of what I am by nature. You too. To only say amen. Or do you still resist? Do you still object? Do you still say this is rather one-sided? I know God is righteous, but God is also, is God not also merciful? That's our last question. Is not God then also merciful? And our last point is saying amen to God's justice, not only in his law and in his curse, but in his son. Is not God then also merciful? 
If you are reading this catechism for the first time and you only came to this question, how would you answer it? Would you think, well, now, now we have heard enough about the justice of God and the curse of God, and now we must hear about the mercy of God. Indeed, a very good question. God is merciful, and he is merciful, and he forgives, and he pardons, and he, he gives eternal life, and he does so freely, and Christ came, and Christ has died, and we would answer all those things. And then we turn to this answer, and it says, God is indeed merciful, but also just. Therefore, his justice requires that sin which is committed against the most high majesty of God be also punished with extreme, that is, with everlasting punishment of body and soul. Why this answer? Why does it say, yes, God is merciful, and then go back to the justice of God? Haven't we heard enough? Friend, as long as we think we've heard enough and I don't want to hear about God's justice, and we just want to hear, hear of God's mercy so that we don't have to think of God's justice and we don't really have to bow under God's justice and we don't have to say amen to God's curse because after all, God is merciful. Then we haven't understood the point. Sometimes, People say, let's not hear of the judgment of God because everyone knows they're a sinner, but let's, we just need to hear of the mercy of God. But when you probe a little deeper, then you don't find in such a person that confession of the psalmist. Lord, in thy judgments thou art just and in thy sentence right. Deep down there's still that refusal to bow. And that's why we still go back to this reality that God is just. That we would say amen to it. That we would bow for it. Under it. Knowing shall not the judge of all the earth do right. That sin is against the most high majesty of God. And therefore God must punish sin. Sin is a slapping of God in the face. Sin is aiming arrows against God and trying to kill God, trying to dethrone God, trying to climb the throne of God and rule myself. That's why God must punish sin with extreme and everlasting punishment in body and soul. A God in mercy cannot just turn a blind eye to sin and say he'll pretend it didn't happen. No, he must punish. God won't hear our appeals to mercy, to soften or to push away the justice of God. He loves his justice too much just to soften it and ignore it and turn a blind eye to its demands. And if we think that God will just forgive all our sin because after all, he is merciful and we never bow under the justice of God, will be disappointed forever. Who here confesses, I deserve God's just judgment? Who here has to stand on Mount Evil and say amen to that curse upon everyone who does not do everything that God commands? say, then what hope is there? There is no hope. 
there is no hope in you. And that's exactly the point. That's what the psalmist realized when he said, Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? No one. Not me standing here, not you sitting in the pew. No one. He doesn't argue with God's justice. He doesn't say it's not fair. He doesn't say it's not so bad. He says, who shall stand? There's none. Why does God reveal this to us? So that we would despair of ourselves. And that we would, as Leviticus 26 says, if then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled and they then accept of the punishment of their iniquity. That's faith. Accept the punishment of their iniquity and saying, yes, Lord, that is what I deserve. Then will I remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac and also with my covenant with Abraham will I remember. Isn't that beautiful? God's way is to cut off everything of us so that as guilty sinners we'd bow under his justice. Not try to push away that just God, but bow under it. And know the mercy of God that fits with his justice. It's to direct us unto the Lord Jesus Christ, that great Lamb of God. Do you know what's so beautiful about this Mount Ebal? There's one thing there that is a silent witness or maybe a crackling witness, a witness that smells of burning flesh, a witness of the mercy of God. On Mount Ebal, when they say amen to the curse, what had God already provided on Mount Ebal? He had already provided that altar. There in the midst of all those people who were saying amen to the curse. And what was that altar a testimony of? The justice and mercy of God meeting together perfectly in a sacrifice. God was, as it were, laying that curse upon that sacrifice, that animal that was being sacrificed, and the smoke of it was rising up unto God. And so as those amens were rising, so also was that smoke rising up unto God as a sweet-smelling savor in his, in his nose with which he was pleased. His justice was satisfied. Satisfied? In a lamb or in a ram? No. Satisfied ultimately in that other great sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ who came. O oh, congregation, do you see him? Him who came, him who didn't argue with God, him who didn't say, is it fair for God to demand perfection? No, he came and he was perfect in the place of those who are all sin. And what did he do? 
He stood before God as one who could not stand before God because he stood before God laden with iniquity. He stood before God as one who was made a curse. And as he was made a curse, did he object? And did he say, this is not fair? Did he say, this punishment is too great? Sin is not so bad. I should not have to suffer so. I should not have to endure the agonies of hell. No, he did not. He was silent a lamb brought to the slaughter. And what was his death? It was one great amen to the curse of God. Let me endure that curse so that those who deserve that curse would go free. That's where Paul quotes this passage of Deuteronomy 27 in Galatians 3, when it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Who here says amen? And then he goes on. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. But who here this morning also says, amen to that gospel, to the curse of the law, satisfied in Christ, as it's pictured there in that, that altar there on Mount Ebal, where we come on Mount Ebal, we confess, yes, Lord, I deserve the curse. He says this morning, do you see that curse? The curse you deserve upon Christ made a curse for us that the blessing may be upon you. Is God just? Yes. Is God merciful? Yes. He is fully both. And either we find him fully just and fully merciful, or we resist him altogether. That's why we sang, the Lord is just, and his grace is wide as the ocean. He's both in his Son. And let all the people say, Amen. Let us pray. O Lord God, Thou art indeed most just. And so easily we try to set that aside. And so easily that resistance rises within us to thy just punishment of, of not just sin in general, but our sin. But, O oh Lord, silence it all. And that we, by thy grace and by thy spirit, would only say amen to the curse that we deserve.
Lord, that we would also say, by that same grace, amen, to that gospel of a curse born by Christ. And that none of us would discover what that curse is too late. Lord, have mercy upon each one of us. Cause us to live by faith that says amen to thy whole word as it centers in thy Son. Bless us further in this day. Keep us in thy care, O Lord. Gather the congregation together again in this evening. Hear us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.